You're listening to a podcast of Family Church in West Monroe, Louisiana. Wherever or however you're listening, our hope is that this message would be challenging and inspiring for you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. Thanks for listening, and let's head to the message. Hello, it is good to be back in the South. It is good to be back. I am excited to be here, 2020, second Sunday. Let's see if we can have a little bit of fun. But I thought the way I wanted to start today actually is to tell you about my favorite day from 2019. So in September, Rachel, my wife, and I were celebrating 10 years of marriage with a trip to Northern California. And the centerpiece of that trip was three days in Yosemite National Park. And Rachel had always wanted to go to Yosemite, so therefore I had always wanted to go to Yosemite. I came to learn as part of this process. But I mean, I was, ex- I was excited. We love hiking. We love doing all of those things. And so we started the research process. So what do you do when you're in Yosemite? And uh, we found that we we're going to stay in these canvas tent cabin things, whatever, that you, know, you get there, and they've been there for like 100 years, literally like 100 years. And they warn you about the mice that carry disease that run around and the bear box where anything that has any smell whatsoever needs to be there. And so you, I mean, you kind of go in there thinking like, what kind of place am I walking into? But you go and it's, it's good and it's safe. But as I did the research, there was one hike that came up and I said, oh man, I want to do this hike. And it's the hike up Half Dome. And most of them, whether you know about Yosemite or Half Dome, it's one of the most iconic pictures and my most iconic hikes. Up here on the right, this is Half Dome. For those of you, anybody seen the free solo and the climbing videos that are on all these streaming services now? Some of those are from, you see some of the hikes on Half Dome. But here's the problem. Only 300 people each day get to make the hike to the very top because of the cables that you have to use to go to the top. So, you know, we're waiting and you only find out two days before if you were a winner and you get to go up or not. So we get to San Francisco, we're gonna meet with a friend of ours there, and the email comes in, you were not selected. And I was bummed out, I was like, no way, this is the one thing I wanted to do. And Rachel's like, you know, I don't, it doesn't really work on our schedule, but let's try for tomorrow. So we put in for the drawing again, and on the way to Yosemite, we get the email, you've been selected to go on this hike. Now this is one of those things that you get selected for, then you do a little bit more reading, And you start thinking, I'm not sure I wanted to be selected to do this. (laughs) I mean, people talk about these harrowing incidents. No joke, someone died like four days before we did it on this exact same hike. But as prepared as we could be, we got ready to take off. And so you leave before dark to start this, what ends up being about an 18-mile round-trip hike up to the top of Half Dome and back. And when I say we were prepared, we leave... You know, you start the hike and like, there's a number of people have like walking sticks and big backpacks and headlamps. Let me just give you a little picture of how I started. My son hid the headlamp that I had ordered from Amazon. So I took a flashlight, put it inside of a beanie and said, Rachel, just follow me. That is no joke how we started our half dome hike. So just give you a little picture of the Eagle Scout you're looking at right here. So... But this, this hike really is amazing. So you start out, and in the dark, you can hear a waterfall. You're clearly walking beside a waterfall. And as the sun comes up, we see this first waterfall. This is actually on the way down. 
means a rainbow at the bottom of a waterfall. I mean, like, what, what is this? So you get above that. There's then another waterfall above that one. So in the first four miles, you've hiked up to the top of two waterfalls. I mean, it just starts out incredibly. Then you go past that, and you begin to pass by the river, which clearly feeds these waterfalls. And everyone is just like beauty after beauty. It's like, this is really amazing. But in your mind, the whole time it's up there is, I still have to go up to the top of Half Dome. And so as you're curling around the mountain, because the cool part about it is, nowhere can you see how to get up there until you're actually on the path. And so as you're curling around, you'll see it out in the distance. And you ever had one of those things where you think, unless my eyes are tricking me, there is no way that I'm going to end up on top of what I'm looking at right there. But you keep going. You end up going through this forest with these incredible trees, uh, different kinds of trees, and they're just humongous. Rachel was clearly impressed by them. And so, but as you come around the end, finally you see it. And I don't know how to explain to you. So if you're looking right here, this first thing you see is they call it the subdome. When I saw the subdome below the full hike, I already, I have a little of a height issue thing that happens. And I looked at Rachel, I was like, ah, I think we, we got kids at home. I'm not sure we need to do this. You know, we have a legacy to protect. There's things we have to do. Is this wisdom? But like, you know, each step you just keep going. And the funniest part was, I can't remember which one of us said, go to the next picture, that right there, that's good. One of us, actually go to the next one. So one of us said, we're sitting there is the subdome. One of us said, I don't see the cables. And the other one said, you're only looking halfway up. And all of a sudden your stomach goes, oh no. So at this point, we've gone to the subdome and now you're there. So at the very top, you end up going, it's about a 45 to a 50 degree incline right there on a, that granite rock face. And the only way you can get up is to hold on to these metal ropes that are there. When we say metal ropes, like it's metal ropes. And so as you're walking up, you're already kind of scared. And then as you get close, there's, you can't see this. This, go back one time. So this, this girl right here, I think she actually probably had superpowers because she flew up there. So before she comes down, there's a group of like eight people I'm not exaggerating to you. This is what we walk up on. Like hanging sideways, like, I'll never do this again. It's the worst thing ever. Like, this is what you're hearing in your mind. Like, oh my. So it looks bad. And then you literally are thinking, I'm about to watch somebody fall to their death right here. But we got the nerve up. We did it. And so then you get to the top of Half Dome. And it is one of the most incredible things. Now, it's interesting. Actually, it's prettier looking at Half Dome from away from it than being on top of it. The fun of it is the journey. The journey getting to the top of it is what makes it so amazing. But we did it. We made it back down, completed the hike. Uh, total, it ended up being about 18 miles. But here's the craziest thing. After all of that stuff that I saw, the one thing that I could not get out of my mind were these crazy trees. When you go through this, the forest that leads up to Half Dome, you go through what is the, one, of the, one of the only sequoia groves in the country. There's about 70 different places where sequoias grow, you know, can grow and they thrive. And when you get there, to me, I mean, I, I remember one time my dad took us as the kids somewhere that had like redwoods and whatever. You know, when you're a kid, you're kind of like, all right, it's a bunch of trees. What are we doing here? But I've reached the age now where I can marvel at trees. There's a certain age where like, you start to appreciate things, it's like, I'm there. 
This is what happens whenever you're an older person. Like you start like, oh, that's really amazing. Did you see those trees? And it's, I think that's one of the signs nobody tells you is when you start marveling at trees, you're, you're moving on up there. So welcome, I'm here, I'm there. Whatever uh, age range that is, I've now reached it. And so I thought about it though. And you know, I don't see many thousand foot granite rock faces on a normal basis. We clearly don't see them here. Pennsylvania, we don't see them. You know, I don't see waterfalls very often. So if I see a 10 foot waterfall or a 100 foot waterfall, I'm kind of impressed by all of them. Like, oh, that's really amazing. That's beautiful. I love that. But when you see a tree that redefines what you think of what a tree can be, that's a pretty interesting thing. See, the deal is, I grew up in the, I grew up in the South here. I've seen our pine trees 100 foot tall. I mean, I grew up seeing that. I have a huge tree in my backyard. And when you see something that says, this is like a whole different breed of thing, that's a pretty cool thing. And so I started thinking about it. I read about it, watching videos about it. And the more I looked at this, the more I saw incredible similarities between the sequoia and between our spiritual life. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to talk about three truths about our spiritual life that I think we can draw direct correlation from the sequoia. Now for me, I love, I love all of the plant-based metaphors in the Bible. I like the, you know, the trees, we have the sycamore trees and the palm trees and the olive trees and the cedar trees and all the trees in the Bible. And they talk about you know, the plants, uh, fruit trees and plants that produce fruit. Now these, this imagery is throughout scripture. And it's some of my favorite imagery that's used for, to help us understand God and the gospel and the truth of his word. And so I believe this gives us a chance to use this picture to understand some things that can be tough for us to understand um, without something to put it in perspective. For, but the promise of Christ and the transformation in our spiritual life is not defined by external actions that's done to make God happy. The promise of the spiritual life is that Christ comes, that the Spirit comes and dwells within us and changes and transforms our heart to the point that we do differently, we think differently, we act differently, we behave differently. That's the promise of spiritual transformation. That's the promise that God offers. And so for us to think, how do we develop a vision of our spiritual life that is close to what it is that God says is possible in his word? How do, we, how do we stop and rethink what this truly can be? And I think there's some ways for us to do that. And so today, I'm not going to give you a checklist of how to develop your spiritual life. I'm not going to give you practices. These are the things you need to do. Sometimes I think it's important for us to connect with what is true before we list off what we should do. And at the start of a year, it's easy for us to make goals and actions and resolutions. And I think all of those things are really important. I think it's important that we do that, but making sure we connect with why is it that we're doing it? What's the vision that we have for the spiritual life that God is calling us to, that he says is possible? Because for most of us, I think we need some help realizing and remembering what it is that he says in his word that is possible. So the first thing I want to say is, first truth is, both of them, their size is like nothing else. 
When, we, when I talk about a sequoia tree, we're talking about a tree that's 250 feet tall. There's ones that are above that. 250 feet tall, 30 feet wide. And we understand, we, we see huge trees here in this area, 100 feet tall, 120 feet tall, maybe up to 130 feet tall. You're talking about double the biggest tree that you may see in Washtenaw Parish, double the height, five times as wide. I mean, the scope of what this tree is is amazing. It's like nothing else we see. I always think about it. If you were driving down Laird Street and one of these was stood next to the tallest tree you're going to see, I mean, it's going to make those trees look small. Get that picture in your mind of what that could look like. When we talk about the spiritual life that Christ calls us to, that God's word calls us to, it is that dramatically different than what it's so easy for us to say is the Christian life. Over time, it is so simple for me to see, oh man, that's an amazing Christian life. We think about a hundred foot tall tree and God's word is set beside it and it's 250 feet tall. It's 30 feet wide. It makes that look small. I want to talk about a couple of the scriptures that I think point to this. The first one we're going to look at is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And when you're talking about the transformation, the spiritual transformation that what happens when we go from the old life to the new life, this is one of the hardest things to pick the right scripture for this. And you're going to see it because even as someone like Paul tries to explain it, he continually struggles to find a picture that's big enough to explain to people what it is that they're being called to, what God says is possible. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but I do want to look back just a couple of verses first. He says in verse 14, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one point, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. The picture we have here is of death and new life. That is how different it is. Paul doesn't say that it's an improved life. He said, no. The only thing we can show you is that it is, the old life is dead, the new life has come. They're totally different. And then he goes on, we see him talk about it again in Ephesians 3, 14. And this is my favorite place where Paul seeks to explain the depth of of the spiritual life. Now, I want to tell you now, Savannah did not look at my notes unless she hacked into my uh, Google Drive account. So whenever, whenever we read this, understand there was no like fancy uh, footwork for us to align her prayer with what we're about to read. So in verse 14, so this, this is Paul. Why don't you picture this? Right there, you see the heading, it says, Paul's prayer for spiritual growth. So think about what he's trying to do. I'm trying to call you to what it is that God says. 
And he's writing this letter and trying to write it in such a way that he can get it in their mind what it is, what it is that God says is possible, that is available. And look where he, even he gets stuck. He says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you be fueled by an understanding that God's love is wider than anything you can imagine. It's higher than what you've ever known. It's deeper than what you've ever felt. And he says, may you experience this love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Even this man who had incredibly experienced God just wrecking him, turning him from one man to another, from Saul to Paul, giving him a vision that changed so much of that world as he carried that ministry forth. He says, I want God to show you all of this, how wide, how long, how high, how deep. And after saying that, he said, even though we cannot even fully grasp, it's so much more than what we've ever seen that it's tough for us to even imagine it. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So we're birthed, we have a new birth from old, the old life is gone, the new life has come. We have an experience of a spiritual life that affects, that is deeper, that has more meaning than anything we've ever known. And to think that everything that he lists there about growing in Christ, growing in his love affects every single area of our life, not by our actions, not by our effort, but by being so transformed that I simply relate differently to the world around me. I see the world differently. I operate differently because I understand something inside of me has changed so much that I don't even see things the way I once did. One of the greatest temptations of our spiritual life, I would argue, is that we begin to replace God's vision for what is possible with a vision that is more comfortable to us, that we can wrap our hands around, that makes sense to us. So I say, what does it mean for you to live the, the life of Christ? I'm gonna be kind to others. I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna do these things, all these things that I can wrap my hand around. When in fact, what he says is that the internal reality is so much, understanding God's love is so much that it's always stretching me. It's always bigger than what I previously imagined. And for me, I, this picture just, it just rings so true that every time I, you drive down Laird Street, one of the ways coming into this church, that when you see a pine tree there, let's say it's 100 feet tall, to understand, God, don't let my view of my spiritual life be limited by what I can see. I want it to be what you can see, what you say is possible in there. That whatever I've experienced now, it's only this much of what is available. As different as a 250-foot tree standing next to a 100-foot tree, for most of us, 
is this, what this says is possible compared to what I've experienced inside. And that should not be an overwhelming, crushing thing, but continually calling me to see what is possible. The second thing, oh, and this one's good right here. I'm sure preaching classes would tell you not to put your best stuff right in the middle, but we're about to go right to the best stuff right here. Second thing that's similar, both, both sequoias and the spiritual life grow in very particular soil. You will only find sequoia, tree, sequoia trees in a very specific part of the country. Think of the entire world, and they are found on the northwest coast of the United States, on one side of the Sierra Nevada mountains, only at 5,000 and 8,000 feet. Because just in that one sliver of land, do they get just the right temperature? Do they get just the amount of the dry air? Not too dry, but dry enough. Do they get just enough moisture that comes from the snow melt and all the things that happen to give them the water that they need to become a tree that's 250 feet tall and 30 feet wide and some crazy million pounds of whatever? Only in that situation do they become that. Now, I don't know about your thinking, but for me, I would think we're talking about the biggest, the beastly, most beastly tree in the entire world. But that's the kind of tree, like, you plant it where you plant it, and it grows where it grows. Right? I mean, y'all, this tree's bark, I'm about to go super nerd biology here. This tree's bark is two and a half feet thick at times. It's bark. I've seen trees that have big, thick bark. Two and a half of the bark. Like they, there's some things you read, you're like, that's not even possible. Man, that's ridiculous. I'll just pick up that piece of bark. Sorry, it's two and a half feet wide. That's the bark on this tree. It has tannins in its bark that allows it to be immune from rot and bug infestations, which if you're going to live 3,000 years, you probably need to be, have a little bit where the bugs can't get to you. So when I start naming off all these things, my logic, my mind says, well, you just plant it wherever you want to, and it's going to grow. It's not true. Sequoia trees grow in a very specific place. And if you took, if we all took a sequoia seed right now, it'd be a great visual. And I told you, go plant it in your backyard. Sorry, you're not getting a sequoia. You might be able to get it to sprout. You might be able to get to grow a little bit, but you're not growing a sequoia. Not a 250 feet one. Here's the truth. Sequoia seeds remain only potential unless they're planted in the soil that gives them life. We all can hold one. Wherever you are in the world, we can hold one. And it remains potential unless it's planted in that soil, the exact soil it needs to grow to that kind of tree. In our spiritual life, there are direct correlations. It will only grow and develop when we are planted in the soil that produces transformation in us. The spirit, no. But, but Lee, I can become a Christian anywhere. You, you may be able to become a Christian. But becoming a Christian and experiencing the life that Christ promises can be two very different things. What's just like that tree requires very specific soil to grow into that size. For us in our spiritual life, there's some specific soil that we need to be planted in if we want to experience the fullness of what he says is possible. 
Now here, I'm not gonna go into, I don't want us to talk about, once again, I'm not talking about what you do. I wanna talk about what is true about the soil. What is true about the soil that allows us to grow? And if we could have, I could have picked 25 scriptures, I'll tell you the truth, I'm picking my two favorite ones. The two that just speak so much truth to me. And the first one's this. We're gonna look at James 4, 8. James 4, 8. And I'll tell you now, this is where I do miss, I'd miss the, the other, the wording that you would find in maybe some more, in a more literal translation, or maybe it's just what I grew up with. James 4, 8 says, come close to God and God will come close to you. For those of us who grew up maybe on some older versions, what did it say? Draw near. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. One of the greatest promises in all of scripture is that the God of heaven and earth says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. This is a hard reality to think about unless we think about this in our marriage and with our children. No one else can make you that promise. Now they can say, I'm gonna try to. They can say, I want to. But the God says, if you do, I will. Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. One of the greatest promises in all of scripture. It says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. To draw near to him and for him to draw near to me, there can be no space. There can be no space. Your loyalty can't be divided. And the closer, I would argue the closer we come to him, the less space there is for the world to get in there the world to come between his heart and mine. And I, now let me say this, because I, I, it's so exciting to hear how many of you are committed to, I've heard people that are committed to reading the Bible this year, committed to prayer. I heard somebody tell me they were committed to making their Sabbath day holy. This promise is what fuels that. Because when I read my Bible, I draw near to his heart so that he can draw near to me. When I pray, I draw near to his heart so he can draw near to me. When I fast, I'm taking something away so that I can draw near to him and he can draw near to me. I'm gonna go to this next one. It talks about the God, about what God offers to us, the, the fuel that he gives us to grow into what it is he's calling us to be. And for those of you who grew up in the church years past, this is a, the past we all would have said, abide in me but we'll use, we'll use our more modern language. It says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. And here's, I want you to spot how many times he says, remain in me. When I read this scripture, I'll be, I wanna be the first to tell you, I look at that and say, oh God, just make sure that I'm, I wanna be one of them. Pr- I don't wanna be pruned away. I want to be connected to the vine. But I want you to see the promises that are woven time and time again in this passage. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Here it is again. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. 
But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. The soil that we are planted in is not about what we do. It's about the promise that if you remain in me, I will remain in you. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That each and everything I do, when I stop and I commit myself to learning about God's word, that it's not about, Lee, I gotta get, gotta get into my word. It's about, God, I want to draw near to you. God, I want to remain in you. I want your words to remain in me. Let this not be about what I do, but truly about me seeing you, about knowing you, but you doing what you do inside, your spirit working within me, transforming me from the inside out. The more, I believe that the more God-sized our vision becomes of the spiritual life that we want and, that, and to experience what he promises, the more our understanding must grow that we must be planted in the right places. When I look at, God, your word says this and this. It says my family can look like this. It says my marriage can look like this. It says my heart can be this way about work. It says that my heart can be this way about loving those who persecute me. All of those things. The more I understand, is that really possible? It's not about all that I do, but about be planted in soil where that could actually happen. Sometimes we read through scripture and we're amazed by the scope of it. We're amazed by what it calls us to. And we think, what do I have to do? And the first place we go, the first place we stop is planting ourselves in him and knowing him and understanding him. There's other, there's other scriptures we could look at. We know that he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The vast potential for the sequoia seed is found in the soil as much as it is in the seed. The seed is just a seed unless it's planted in that soil. Our spiritual life will be limited by how willing are we to plant ourselves in the soil where it can grow and expand. The third thing is, sequoias, they never stop growing. Never. They can grow to be potentially 3,000 years old. Just roll that around your mind. 3,000 years old. One of the ones uh, that, that fell in uh, Yosemite sometime in the last 50 years or so was dated at 2,200 years old. Just go in your mind and think about a tree that was standing whenever the Roman Empire was in place. I mean, 2,200 years ago, these, these trees, they're always growing. A sequoia tree will grow to the day that it dies. Becoming, you know, for us, becoming a tree, become, the spiritual life, that Christ offers coming to life inside of us, the old being gone, the new being come, new coming. That's just the start. We've, bec we've become a Christian. We've become, the spiritual life has been birthed. But it, for us to grow until the day we die, growing, and I, as I thought about that, I think, so how do, we, how do we get a picture of growth, just so it's not that we're just always improving, but a standard that calls us from this day to the, to the day we die. And we see that again, of course, in Paul, with Paul in Ephesians 4.13. There, what that standard is, what that potential for growth is. Ephesians 
And there's a number of places we could look at in here, but I love this one. It says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord. And I love how this word is. We can look at mature, be perfect, be fully grown. And when it explains what mature in the Lord is, it says measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. One of the most challenging parts when we really dig into, God, what do you want to be true of my spiritual life is? There's not a person that you can name. There's not a person you've read about that is the ultimate standard that's, that you're being called to. Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, that is the standard. Because I think about for me, one, and I'm just telling you, one of the challenges of the spiritual life is just I keep putting my human eyes around it. But man, I, I really haven't grown this much. I mean, I have this spiritual life, and I can see where I was 10 years ago. And there can be a complacency that comes. I'm sure I'm the only one spiritually that can land with a complacency. And I love, you think about, I, just, I think about who Paul was, and regardless of how humble he was or prideful he was, or he was a very interesting man when we look at the full scope of who Paul was. But what he went back to was, until we come to the fullness of what the standard Christ sets for us, that then we're going to keep growing. So anytime I feel myself feeling like maybe I've reached what is spiritual maturity to look and say, so have I reached the standard of Christ? And for me, what that, when I look at the standard of Christ, I don't get overwhelmed that I've got to be perfect. When I look at my marriage or my kids, I don't, there is an overwhelm but it's an overwhelm that leads me to the truth that I can't do this without you. The standard of Christ leads me again and again to submission of only you can do that in me because I know me. I know my spiritual capability of what I might be able to do. I think I know. And it is not to meet the standard of Christ. It's not to get anywhere close to that. So the reason, the reason I wanted to look at these three truths, the truth that the size, the scope of what he's calling us to, of the spiritual life, it's like nothing else we can imagine. If you think you've gotten a handle on what does it mean for, to be spiritually mature, I would argue that you're in a dangerous spot. Because God is continually calling us. His word is continually revealing what he wants to do on the inside that transforms what's happening on the outside. That it would not even happen because of my effort, because I'm so transformed that I just think differently. I do differently. I act differently. That I must be planted in the right soil. And that lastly, I'm never going to stop growing. The reason why it's so critical that we have all of those three pieces continually moving within us, continually pressing us forward, is this last thing. This last thing that I think is so incredibly similar between our spiritual life and that of a sequoia. So after we'd gone down, we're coming down that mountain, um, there's a place where you're coming off a half dome and you're going back through the forest where there's a backpack trail that goes into the, ba the back country of Yosemite. So people who go out and spend four or five days living with the bears and the coyotes and whatever, they come and meet us normal tourists and we kind of go down the rest of the way. 
So these two really cool older Australian guys, they're on a walk. They're in a walking club. I'm doing the most strenuous thing of my life, and they're referring to it as a walk. This, this is the kind of people we're talking about. So we start walking with them, and they're just, they're interesting. They're Australians. They just sound way cooler than we do. All of it. And so um, we're walking, and we just, we've talked about a lot of things. And at one point, we just said, you know, it's just so hard. Like, it's so sad to see these trees. It's so sad to see these trees that are burned. These are beautiful, huge trees. I mean, it's, just, it's tough to see we saw so much of them. And, he, and, and I said, just to see them dead. And he said, they're not dead. I said, dude, I don't know what black trees look mean where you come from, but that equals a dead tree where I'm coming from. I mean, some Australian magic thing he's talking about. He's like, no. He said, sequoias require fire to grow. What we actually come to see is for 70, 80 years, the policy was, man, we have these incredible trees in Yosemite. When fire happens, we got to put it out. We got to put the fire out at all costs. And they looked up, there were no new trees coming. No new sequoias were being born. Well, when you've done this for 70 years, at some point someone's like, hey guys, we might want to try something different here. This doesn't seem to be working. And at that point, the policy began to change. They understood some new things and they reintroduced fire to the sequoia groves in Yosemite. Now, I don't know about you, but you gotta be the pretty gutsy fellow to say, hey, I think we ought to start a fire in the middle of these trees. Like, let's be clear, Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt are the ones who kind of made this whole thing happen. So like, I think we ought to try to burn those things down. And so they began to reintroduce fire, and an amazing thing happened. The sequoias began to thrive. The sequoias began to reproduce. They began to grow like never before. And what was learned is sequoias are not amazing because they survive a fire. Sequoias thrive in fire. They require fire. It does things for them that no amount of protection by man can do. Take a few minutes, take a couple minutes. I want you to see what, get a picture of this. Giant sequoias are the largest trees on earth. They can grow for more than 3,000 years. But without fire, they cannot reproduce. The giant sequoias really are born of fire. Fire gives them three things they need for regeneration. The first one is it punches a hole in the forest. That allows there to be more light and more water for the sequoia seedlings. The second thing it does is it heats the cones up in the mature sequoia trees without harming the trees. And those cones open up. <clears throat> and there's a rain of seeds on the ground. And the final thing it's done is it cleared away all the leaves that have built up because sequoia seeds need to hit bare mineral soil before they can germinate and survive well. Then the winter storms come in and bury them in a blanket of snow. And then when the spring comes, they have the ideal conditions. It's warmer. 
gets really wet and those seeds will take off and become seedlings. From their birth among the ashes, these seedlings have become the groves we see today. With trees nearly 300 feet tall, It's incredible. I love that it says fires do three things. They clear the canopy. They make room for the sun to get to the young sequoia so that they can grow into the monsters that we see. It, it burns away the things that are, that are on the soil. Gets, also what it does, it gets rid of the other plants that are draining the water and the, and the food that these trees need. And lastly, those seeds, those cones can stay there for 20 years before they release their seeds. And it's only, a lot of times the dry air can do it. What they say is that the fire, because it prepares the ground at the same time, it's uniquely, it's uniquely gifted to allow those seeds to let go, to rain down and to fall on soil where they can reproduce. And when they started doing that, what they realized is just in this process, just in this process, the sequoia groves will continue to thrive, to expand, new trees will grow. Not by protecting it, by, not by making sure nothing bad happened, but by bringing in fire and burning away those things that are not giving them life. You know, for some of you, 2019, there were some fires. And maybe you're dealing with the burn scars of what happened in 2019. For some of you, I don't want to be negative, but 2020 is going to bring some fires. If we do not have a God-sized vision for what he's trying to do spiritually inside of us, that when we say, God, your will be done, not his will for me to feel good and be happy, for me to become what he's calling to me to be on the inside. Because sometimes what happens is when fires come, we say, but I wanna know why is this fire happening? Why is this going on? And as I begin to look at scriptures, this is amazing. So I say, did, did God do this? Is this the enemy? You know, one thing that's amazing as you look through scriptures that speak about this, we know in the Old Testament it says, you know, in Genesis what, God, what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. We know in Romans it says, God works all things together for good. In Hebrews it says, he disciplines those he loves for their good. Here's the reality across all of them. The fire, the challenge, he will use for our good. So when I look and say, God, give me a view that's big enough of the spiritual life that you want to birth in me, that when the fire comes, the only thing I say is, God, what are you doing right now to prepare me for what you say is possible? When it comes and I wonder, how am I gonna make it? Am I planted in the soil where the one promise I cling to is you draw, I draw near to you and you'll draw near to me. Not that you'll make it all better, but you will draw near to me. That if I remain in him, he will remain in me. And then God, I'm always growing. God, I do not want to limit the size of the spiritual life to what I can see, to what I've experienced, to what I think is possible. 
give me a vision that only you could have. A vision that is the fullness, the standard of Christ. That for my life, the reason I exist is to bring glory and honor to you. So if there's any part of me that needs to be burned away, God, give me spiritual eyes to step into that. And not to focus on why is it happening, but to focus on what it is that you can do as a result. That's easy to say, but it can be hard to live out. I haven't been through some of the fires that some of you have been through. I'll be the first to say that. But I can tell you, each time that I walk through a fire, if I can ever keep my eyes on God, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you're doing on the inside of me? Because I want to become what it is you're calling me to be. I hope, I, I know there's probably a lot of you out there that are like me and that for a number of reasons, for your life, your experiences, situations, whatever it may be, you still think, man, when I, when I hear it says how wide, how deep, how long, how high God's love is, I just, it's hard for me to think about what that would really look like. My prayer for you is whenever, is that this image of a tree, that maybe it is something that can help you. That when you think this is what God is, do you think, wait, God, it's, I know it's bigger than what I can imagine. Help me to see that. Holy Spirit, reveal that to me. So my prayer as we end today is going to be that as a people, we will embrace embrace the fire and allow it to bring out what it is that God wants to bring out in our lives. If it's that he wants to reproduce new disciples and he's gonna use that fire in me to release that and to see that happen, then your will be done. If I have allowed things to cloud the canopy that allows his light to get to me, then burn it away. If there are things that I've brought in that scattered the floor so that I can't get the water and the nutrients that I need, God, burn it away. Because I don't want, I, want, I don't want to limit the spiritual life that you say is possible. I want to experience it. I want to live in it. I want my kids to see that. Let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you've brought when you brought your son. I thank you for the life that you offer Jesus and for the Holy Spirit, the work that you do, the promise that you bring that we could be transformed into the full and complete standard of Christ, that that would be our standard. That would be what calls us up. And Lord, I pray especially for people in this church who've been through fires, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to see what you might be able to do spiritually in them, how you would strengthen them, how you can use it, Lord, to help them to grow into your image. Lord, for those that fires will come, I pray a seed is planted right now that when those fires come, they won't ask why, but they'll begin to look for what it is that you're wanting to do in them that you would be with them, that they would draw near to you and you would draw near to them. Thank you for your promises, for your truth. We believe in them, we cling to them. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Family Church Podcast. You can stay connected with us at familychurch.org 
or by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission at Family Church is to pursue God, make disciples, and strengthen